Hello and welcome back to The Fanatical Futurist. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the future of finance, where we are now, where it's heading, and how we're going to get there. We're going to discuss fintechs, banks, hedge funds, and even artificial intelligence lawyers. I'm Andy Rowe, and joining me is The Fanatical Futurist, Matt Griffin. Matt, what have you been up to since we last spoke, mate? So, uh, been working with the US government on a variety of different transportation initiatives and everything else, which is always kind of a strange one, because when you're working with governments whose central question about the future of transportation and mobility is what happens when half of our states are underwater and the other half are actually on fire, Mm. it fundamentally changes the future mobility conversation. And then also, it looks like increasingly I'm going to be up at Davos, actually, ironically, having a conversation about the future there. So Davos, that's it, World Economic Forum territory, all that sort of stuff. In the Alpine Slopes, that's it. Okay. Oh, uh, I'm not even sure what date that is, actually. That's it. But it looks like I'm going to be over there having conversations. I've been having conversations about that this week. What do you mean you've been having conversations about that? What, what have you been having conversations about? So going to Davos, basically, actually having conversations with the assembled leaders around the future of mobility. Everything from your traditional flying cars to your flying rockets to your flying aircraft that don't fly on fossil fuels any longer, all the way through to cars that make their own cryptocurrencies and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so that's a sort of little fun one. Like the one we talked about in Miami. Yeah, well, this is it, exactly. So, you know, as well as talking about the future of things like resilient infrastructure and everything else as you find half your countries underwater, it looks like we're even going to be having conversations about what happens when people build cities in the ocean. Now, there is a company called Oceanics, basically, that got approval by the United Nations actually about three, four years ago to create the first ocean-based city. And then we had the Maldives last year announced that they were going to create the first ocean-based city because the Maldives, see a lot of people sort of say, you know, these islands are sinking. Yeah, right. they're not, they're flooding, you know, so we sort of have to get that the right way around. So whenever you see the Maldives, it looks like they're, they're building on the water anyway, everything, all yeah. the houses, all the villas look like they're on the water anyway. Yeah, well, yeah. well that's, that's only the expensive chalets that you go to. Right. Oh, I don't go to them, trust me. I just I just see the brochure. Well, this is, yeah, exactly. That's it. You've been going to Kuoni too much. That's it. For the rest of the Maldavians, I think, was it the average height of the Maldives above sea level at the minute is like one and a half metres, you know, right. one and a quarter metres, which bearing in mind sea level is rising at eight millimetres a year now, and that's actually accelerating. And it's accelerating on the one hand because the ice caps are melting, but I suppose what, what a lot of the listeners might not actually realize is that over 50% of all sea level rise is actually attributed to the fact that global warming is heating up the oceans and the oceans are actually expanding. You know, so it's actually thermal expansion, which is a sort of uh, a slightly nutty one. So we're sort of having conversations about that. I've been having conversations with organizations in Japan. There we've been having conversations about the future of nutricles and perfumes and pharmaceuticals and everything else. I've also been having chats, especially with some of the world's largest perfume houses, actually, ironically, who should remain nameless. But we're going to be doing some interesting things with coming up uh, in the next few weeks. Still topping and tailing the Trends Codex. So now got 180 mega trends in the Trends Codex. One of the books that I'm actually writing at the minute is the 311 Trends Codex, which everyone can download from the website. It goes through over 180 megatrends. What the hell is a megatrend? I've got no idea. This is why this is why I'm here because I don't know what you're talking about. So a megatrend is a large immovable trend basically that is generally headed in one direction. So for example, you know, everyone getting smartphones is kind of like a megatrend. The internet is a megatrend. Right. 
you know, so podcasting and social audio is a kind of mega trend. Gotcha. Geopolitics and the rise of China is a mega trend. So generally mega trends basically are very, very large trends that have an impact on almost every every corner of global business, culture and society. They are incredibly difficult for individuals, organizations, as well as governments to actually change or divert or disrupt. And then you've got lots of different sort of little mini trends, so micro trends. And those little micro trends are, you can kind of think of them as eddies and vortexes, basically within that big mega trend that ultimately determines your final destination. You know, so if you have a look at banking, which we'll have a little chat about, you know, the mega trend is banking is becoming digitized, cryptocurrencies and all that sort of stuff. Um, but micro trends might be things like NFTs within the banking sector anyway. Obviously, we want to talk about the future of finance. I think like where I'd like to start with this, do you know much about what's going on? Uh, you know, because there's a lot going on in the Ukraine at the moment. And one of the things that has been happening to Russia and their economy is that there are things getting turned off by the West, right? And one of those things is money. Like Swift, Apple, they're all shutting things down. Do you know much about that? And Because there's a worry that you see on, uh, I saw some stuff floating around on social media about how easy it is for private companies like Apple and stuff just to turn off your money and, and things like that. Do you know much about what's going on there? So I know enough to be dangerous, put it like that. That's it. But I'm not going to say I'm an expert. So, you know, when you have a look at Russia, so the, the vast majority of the Russian banking sector is reliant on the SWIFT network, which is a global payment network. Now, if you're on that global payment network, then I can send money to you. I can send money to another bank. I can send money to another organization in a relatively straightforward way. So things like what we sort of call uh, intermatching. If I take you off of the SWIFT network, should we say that convenience goes away? So we saw Biden, as well as different sort of Western democracies, actually take the, what many in the financial services community thought of as the nuclear option and disconnect seven Russian banks from the global SWIFT network. We've also seen sanctions being drawn down on a whole variety of different oligarchs, especially as well as Putin's inner circle and all that kind of stuff. When you actually have a look at sanctions, China, Iran, North Korea, as well as Russia, basically have actually been trying to lay the foundation to usurp the US dollar as the world's global reserve currency. What I mean by that is at the minute, you know, if Russia, for example, wants to, not that they would, but if, say, for example, they want to buy equipment or oil or whatever it happens to be, typically you do that in dollars because dollar is the global reserve currency. Same with China. When you have a look at uh, Russia and China's use of the dollar as a global reserve currency, it now represents about 70% of all their transactions. It used to represent sort of closer to 100. So you now see Russia and China transacting together in, for example, the yuan or the ruble. You're seeing a lot more euros basically coming into the mix there. So when you have a look at Russia and sanctions, increasingly if someone kicks you off of the SWIFT network, if someone basically kicks kicks you in the crop, basically when it comes to sanctions, inevitably you try to find alternative ways to still keep your economies running and everything else. So that's where we see global reserve currencies coming through. And then, you know, sort of in addition to that, basically we've seen a whole variety of different Western organizations, as well as actually Eastern organizations, you know, Japanese organizations, Australian organizations, all that kind of stuff, actually pulling out of Russia. Now, that's actually a megatrend. So that is a megatrend called strategic dislocation. 
strategic dislocation is where different brands, governments, et cetera, et cetera, pull themselves or pull their operations away from different countries and different regions for whatever reason. You know, it can be geopolitics. I just don't like you. It can be because those countries have different ideological beliefs. We're increasingly seeing a lot more countries around the world strategically dislocate themselves as well as their supply chains, basically from Russia. A lot of people might not know, but about a year ago, Russia actually tested taking itself out of the global internet system. So when you actually have a look at the internet, it's generally centralized still. So, you know, we've got the ICANN and DNS systems basically that sort of keep the internet running. But fundamentally, the internet is really still an American construct. So Russia, as well as China, have been building their own internet systems and backbones and everything else. These are called splinternets. But about a year ago, which might have actually been a prelude basically to what happened in U Ukraine, because when you have a look at the stepping stones, it just seems a little bit too convenient. But about a year ago, the Russian government took the decision to strategically disconnect itself, the entire country in a test from the global internet. Because if Russia suddenly comes under massive cyber attack from other countries, the best way to shut those countries' attacks down is you just push a button and you take your country, not quite offline, but you put up your defences and suddenly they can't even get to you any longer. I'm surprised they haven't done it already. That that seems like quite an obvious thing for a lot. Like the, the internet doesn't have any competition. No. Now, we have seen an anonymous attacking a lot of Russian assets and facilities and all that kind of stuff as well. But at the moment, when you actually have a look outside of the hacktivists groups, there aren't or there don't seem to be any foreign countries that are actually actively attacking Russia, basically from a cyber perspective, you know, Foreign countries are always messing around with each other when it comes to cyber anyway, let's face it. You know, that's that happens in peacetime. It happens during war and it happens after war, back in peacetime again. One thing that uh, Anonymous did actually say recently was that they managed to hack into the Russian Disinformation and Misinformation Ministry. They've actually got ministries for disinformation and misinformation. It's like the Ministry of Communication. And then within the Ministry of Communication, you've got the group that sows dissent discord right. misinformation and disinformation around the world uh, and anonymous i think said that they managed to get about what 320 gigs worth of documents and everything else that's about 320 gigs worth of data and about sort of 320,000 documents it was kind of that sort of thing so that'll mm. be fun for the guardian to go through let's take a closer look at finance and what it could mean for any person listening to this like for me for example you know let's look at where finance is now where it's going in the next 10 years, 20 years, and, and 50 years. So let's tuck into it in detail. Yeah, sure. So I suppose basically where finance is at the minute, really you've got kind of three camps. So when we talk about finance, you're talking about traditional banks. We're talking about traditional building societies. We're talking about fintechs. We're talking about decentralized finance. We're talking about global wealth management advisors. We're talking about wealth offices. When we actually have a look at traditional banks, for example, you know, say the likes of... I'll use, say, City, Wells Fargo. I won't use JP Morgan because we can come to them in a little bit. Generally, what they're trying to do is, on the one hand, they're embedding artificial intelligence basically into their operations. So that's just your sort of traditional, relatively narrow AI. Basically, they're increasingly leveraging the blockchain to do a variety of different and interesting and funky things. They're also automating the stack. You know, if you actually have a look at Goldman Sachs, for example, you know, Goldman Sachs have been trying to use artificial intelligence and robotic process automation to 
on the one hand, they've already automated a lot of their equities traders, but they're also trying to automate things like the IPO process as well. When you have a look at organizations like JP Morgan, JP Morgan are now using artificial intelligence robo lawyers, and they've managed to save themselves about 435,000 man hours of legal work. That's it, just by using artificial intelligence to review different contracts and all that kind of stuff. So if you have a look at a lot of the larger banks, they kind of have this sort of problem now, because on the one hand, you've got the significant rise of fintechs. It's organizations like Revolut, you know, Monzo, the neobanks, Starling. And when you have a look at fintechs, the vast majority of fintechs, in fact, pretty much every single one of them is digital by default. You know, there was not a single fintech that 10 to 15 years ago went, right, what we're going to do is we're going to start a bank. And the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to buy a gigantic IBM mainframe and we're going to shove it in our own data center, run our own technology stack and tie into all these sort of different services. You know, so all of the fintechs, for example, are typically running off cloud. They don't really have mainframes. They've got cloud based core banking systems. When you actually start having a look at the economics of fintechs versus traditional banks, especially during the pandemic, 65% of all new bank accounts that were opened during the pandemic were actually opened with a fintech. Now, the cost of opening a bank account with a fintech for the fintech is actually zero. But the cost of managing that bank account for a year is about $15 to $25. Right. Traditional banks, therefore, you know, 35% of new bank accounts were opened with a traditional bank. And let's face it, it's harder because they still aren't really digital native. It costs those banks typically about $150 to open those bank accounts. And then it costs those traditional banks about $250 to $450 a year to manage those bank accounts. And by manage those bank accounts, we're talking about really the tech stack. So when you actually have a look at fintechs, fintechs, I continue to think of as being kind of like a traditional bank, but fully digital with a nice user interface. And mm-hmm. the reason why I say that is when you hark back basically to you know, the Medici times, the first Medici bank was like the 1600s. You know, Medici was one of the first people who said, right, if people have got money, why don't you give me your money and I will put it in my vault and I will keep it safe for you. That was the original bank, the Medici Bank out in Italy. The evolution, basically, of the Medici Bank sort of then went along these lines. Medici went, well, if I have everyone's money, why can't I just loan that out to people for interest? And that was where, ostensibly, some of the first banking loans came from. So that's kind of Bank 1.0. Then we kind of evolved a little bit. So we ended up with Bank 2.0, basically, which were things like the big AT&T and City mainframes, the Irma mainframes, basically, which are kind of like the 1970s and so on. And really, basically, when you actually have a look at uh, Bank of America, for example, Bank of America really started using mainframes back in the 1970s because they were handling manual checks and checking accounts and everything else. And they just couldn't keep up with the number of new accounts that were actually being opened. So they wanted to try to find a way to automate that. So that's where the mainframes then started coming in. Then we kind of had Bank 3.0, which was sort of 1980s. That was kind of self-service. So that's where we saw ATMs coming in, credit cards coming in, sort of 1970s sort of credit cards coming in. But really, when you actually have a look at banking, I continue to say that banking's model is broken because 
everybody today moans like crazy about Facebook. It's if you and this might sound odd, but there's a link here. You know, we all moan like crazy about Facebook or Meta now because they take something from us. So in Meta's case, it's data. And then they profit off that at our expense. Mm. Now, I argue that banks are like the Facebooks and the Metas, et cetera, et cetera, of the financial services world, because what they do is they will take money from you and I, put that into that giant safe you know, somewhere. They then pay us incredibly little interest. You know, I mean, how many people who are listening to this podcast uh, have bank accounts that are paying anything above what? One or two percent. Yeah, not a lot. Come on. You know, Mm. that's not been keeping up with real time earnings. However, what they will then do. So the banks will take money from us, pay us pretty much nothing in return, but then loan it out at what? Seven percent if you're a business, 13 percent if you're a business, if you're a consumer, 26 percent to 32,000 percent. I've seen some loans coming out, legal loans as well. We're not even talking loan sharks. So I tend to argue basically that the banking model is actually broken because banks take money from us and interest on the money that they then loan, which is our money that they actually loan out. And in return, they do exactly what the Medici Bank did all those years ago. They say, we will keep your money safe. So the whole USP basically of a bank is that you give them your money, but they keep it safe. Mm. That's their value add, you know, and then they sort of make money off that. Now, when we start having a look at the future of banking, so things like banking 4.0, I tend to argue that, that banks should put customers first. You know, we see customer satisfaction scores with banks are like junk. I mean, you know, it's, it's like laughable. It's one of the sort of uh, least loved industries basically in the world, unfortunately, you know, aside from insurance and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, when we actually start putting customers at the heart of things, we already have the technologies today to allow consumers to give a bank our money. And then as a consumer, I should be able to say, I would like my money to go to a good cause. You know, if you are actually using it and everything else, I want you to invest it in an ethical cause, like save the sloth or whatever it happens to be. I don't want you to actually use it to fund wars or terrorism. You know, and there were quite a number of UK banks a number of years ago uh, that were caught up in scandals because a lot of their deposits were actually being used covertly to finance terrorists. Not that they necessarily knew, but again, you know, so the regulators kind of came in, had a look and went, hey, what's all this uh, that's going on? And then the banks investigated and went, oh, blimey, how did that happen? So to bring it back to the point, you know, when you actually have a look at traditional banks, traditional banks especially are hamstrung by legacy infrastructure. They're trying to keep up and keep pace with fintechs that are digital by default. And they're never really going to be able to keep up because fintechs are evolving at digital speed. Banks are kind of trying to evolve at digital speed while they've got a massive anchor holding them back. And those anchors are their legacy infrastructure, operations, processes, products, and all that kind of stuff. So what we're starting to see is we're starting to see some banks, again, like JP Morgan, but we've seen it with Wells Fargo, uh, actually creating digital banks from scratch. So if the likes of JP Morgan say, well, look, you know, to transform the core of our bank, it's going to take five to 10 years before we are a fully digital bank and we can't keep pace with the fintechs, then why don't we just go off and create a pure vanilla digital bank? And that's what JP Morgan are now doing in the UK, for example. But then when we start having a look at the deeper future of finance, we've then got decentralized finance coming in. 
So decentralized finance is where I could loan you money, Andy, straight off the bat. I don't have to go through a fintech. I don't right. have to go through a JP Morgan, an HSBC, a Barclays, or whatever it happens to be. You and I basically can have a, a blockchain-based smart contract agreement. I say, I give you money, and provided you pay me back on time, then I keep the interest rate at a particular rate. If you don't pay me back on time, then the blockchain smart contract understands that, and it starts jacking your, your APR up. This is sort of where we increasingly argue, well, if you're a Santander, an HSBC, a Barclays, a Wells Fargo, a City, a whatever you happen to be, it's highly likely that you're looking at your own competition. It's then highly likely that you're looking at what the fintechs are doing. It's highly unlikely that you're actually looking at Roblox mm. or any of the big platform games. Now, when you have a look at Roblox, for example, you know they've got their own coin. It's not a crypto coin, but they've got their own coins. 95% of their profits come from microtransactions. At the last count, they had about 300 million users. What happens if Roblox all of a sudden says, you know what, we want to become a decentralized finance brand, and we're going to offer a variety of different financial services Bearing in mind that kids, for example, are already buying digital assets, you know, will the kids get a Roblox credit card? Mm. You know, do they get a Roblox mortgage? Do they get a Roblox loan so that they can go off and buy an NFT copy of a Gucci handbag for their Roblox avatar, which is actually a thing, by the way? And then even moving it beyond decentralized finance, I've only seen a few of these. We've actually seen the rise of around three to four completely fully autonomous hedge funds where human founders have created financial services organizations, particularly in that sort of hedge fund space, that autonomously invest. To quote one of the founders, if I die, this thing will just keep going. So we've, when we look at the future of finance, you know, and we haven't even really discussed things like crypto or NFTs mm. or CBDCs, basically, or any of these kinds of things yet, it's gone from being sort of this space where we always talk to banks about, are you digitizing? Are you using DevOps? Are you moving your stuff to mm. the cloud? You know, what are you doing with RPA and artificial intelligence? And, you know, by the way, have you thought about automating your customer service stack to a whole new ballgame? Well, let's have a look now. That's finance. That's the future of finance. Let's have a look now. Let's move on to the news of the week. What big news have you seen that the future's got in store for us? Yeah, so, uh, so we, I mean, we've got a variety of different things. So, for example, this week, basically, we've seen British Aerospace, who have teamed up semi and fully autonomous drones with manned pilots or with manned fighter jets. So when we actually have a look at the future of warfare, increasingly it's going to leverage artificial intelligence. And then at some point we flip to full auto because now I, personally, I think that's inevitable and everything else. Bearing in mind that we have a lot of countries basically that aren't signing up to the UN charter to ban fully autonomous weapons and everything else. And that's kind of a different conversation for a different podcast. But as I say, British Aerospace have successfully teamed up unmanned drone systems with manned fighter jet systems and sort of combat exercises and everything else. We've also seen a couple of new cancer therapies actually coming through. So we've got something called nanobeads, basically from organizations like Rice University. Now, these nanobeads, they work in a very targeted way. 
they've been able to completely destroy. And by completely, we're talking about 100%. They've been able to completely destroy colon tumors and ovarian tumors in mice. And so that's going to be heading to human trials soon. It's amazing. If we have a look at the future of agriculture, which again, we'll do sort of in a couple of future episodes and everything else, people might be familiar with the concept of vertical farms. So a vertical farm is a warehouse-like structure, like an Amazon warehouse, a Walmart warehouse, and so on and so forth, that we use to grow crops in. Typically, they use 99% less water, 100% less chemicals and herbicides and everything else. And you can grow eight crops with eight times the yields, you know, throughout the year, obviously. One of the interesting twists that I've actually seen this week is as we've got organizations like Plenty and Aero Farms spinning up vertical farms that grow traditional crops outside of the likes of New York and all over the world, really. We've now got organizations like Infarm, uh, based out of Germany, and we've got others based out of Switzerland, that are actually growing perfume ingredients especially within these vertical farms. Because when you have a look at the perfume industry, trying to get hold of lily of the valley scent is actually really expensive. It's really tricky to do. And there's obviously a relatively finite supply. So if you can grow things like lily of the valley within a vertical farm, bingo. You know, you've got perfume ingredients, sustainable perfume ingredients on tap. So we've sort of seen that. And then besides from that, obviously we've sort of talked about JP Morgan going into the metaverse where JP Morgan's metaverse play on the one hand is to try to show everybody that they're cool from a talent hiring perspective because yeah. you know, people want to work on exciting things and companies like JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, those kinds of guys have actually had problems hiring data scientists and the and software developers and everything else because they sort of go you can either work for google and a company that looks cool with beanbags or you can work for a bank you know most millennials and most sort of younger you know younger kids are sort of like a bit boring mm. so on the one hand you know jp morgan sort of diving into the metaverse i think is actually designed as a hey look kids we're cool we're doing new things and exciting things come and work for us and do some exciting things with the future of finance that metaverse bank branch is really them staking their claim to the meta economy, which is estimated to be worth, you know, $50 trillion, depending on, you know, if you look at some of the investors notes, really JP Morgan are trying to say, if you are somebody who wants to buy a piece of digital realty in the metaverse for $4.3 million, as we saw recently next to Snoop Dogg's virtual house, why don't you come to us and get a virtual mortgage with us? You know, so that's got to be a great play for banks. You know, hey, come and borrow real money from us so that you can go and buy your virtual house, which doesn't exist, mm. which then also doesn't exist in the place that doesn't exist. So this is kind of the craziness that we sort of get to when we can have conversations about, you know, digital assets, tokenization, NFTs, you know, all these sorts of bits and bobs. I mean, you know, you step back sort of five, 10 years ago and said, hey, I just bought a, a virtual reality house in this thing called the metaverse for $4.3 million. And I just hung a $69 million NFT piece of art, basically, in my virtual house. And I borrowed a load of money to fund that. People are just going, and you're nuts. Why should I feel like I'm missing out? Is there something going on there that we should be jumping on that we're not? 
Oh yeah, FOMO. That's it, you know. That's it, right? I mean, you know, you can put that right out. I mean, and this is sort of the other interesting thing with a lot of these future technologies and future innovations and, and bits and bobs. There is this giant thing of you missing out. You know, this is sort of mm. why everyone is suddenly diving into the metaverse. It's why everyone dived into AI and blockchain and everything else. And we saw the hype increase. Mm. You know, it's because, hey guys, basically there's this new thing called the metaverse, which is actually an old thing with a new name. Uh, bear in mind it was virtual reality really mm. anyway and you know this thing basically is going to be a massive opportunity it's going to be a huge part of the global economy if you're not experimenting it with it now then frankly when it does become a thing in five or ten years time you're dead you know yeah, yeah you know i mean i was in dubai last week and there was a healthcare based metaverse based university and at the end of this session, basically, where the guy was sort of walking us all around, basically, this uh, hospital sort of training center, basically, in the metaverse, he went, and of course, you know, if you want to join us, you can buy land right next to our hospital. You know, it's jumping on the bandwagon stuff. I mean, some of these things basically are really useful, to be fair. You know, there are some really valuable things. But, um, you know, should we all be buying Bitcoin? Should we all be buying Dogecoin because Elon Musk keeps tweeting about it and everything else? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Should we all be buying into CBDCs, basically, on the finance side of things? There's a load of FOMO. That's it. But generally, with a lot of these things, you need money and resources to invest, but that, mm. that is expendable. Yeah. And then you can play around with yeah. them. And you can do some really cool things. I mean, we've built this sort of university in the metaverse. You can do some really cool things, but don't necessarily expect to make a huge amount of money back off them. It's interesting experimenting with a lot of this stuff. And I think a lot of people should experiment with some of these things so they do get a point of view. Yeah, it's going to be a slow burn trend for about the next 10 years. Then we'll start seeing some of these plays come off. Speaking of experimenting, you've got to experiment to innovate. Let's talk about the innovation of the week. Let's finish things off. All right. So uh, so kind of this is two, that's it, but it's all related. <laughs> the innovation of the week basically is the future of aircraft carriers is flying aircraft carriers, right? Now, a lot of people sort of think, well, hang on, you know, uh, if you sort of think back to uh, the Marvel series, S.H.I.E.L.D. and everything else, you know, they've got these flying aircraft carriers. Mm. And if you want to destroy one, you just take out its turbo fans and then it crashes into the sea, That's it, which is where it probably should have been anyway. But actually, when we have a look at the future of warfare, bearing in mind that increasingly the future of warfare basically is semi and or fully autonomous drones and aerial based combat systems, We've seen a lot of organizations like the US military experimenting with C-130s and their Gremlins program, where they will launch drones from the back of a C-130. The drones will go off, do their things, you know, whatever it is that they get up to. And then they'll come back to the C-130 and land in the C-130, either on pods and pylons, but you're actually in the C-130 itself. So when we actually have a look at the future of aircraft carriers, bearing in mind that today we'll launch F-35s and F-16s and everything else off of a traditional carrier deck, mm. yeah, the future of aircraft carriers is flying aircraft carriers. And as for that second thing that I mentioned, we're now starting to see the US Navy actually experimenting with what they call submarine motherships. So submarine motherships are underwater aircraft carriers, but as opposed to launching planes and drones and everything else they're launching undersea vehicles you know that sort of stuff so that's a sort of funny one there are a lot of people so when you say to people you know in the future we will have flying aircraft carriers everyone's initial reaction is that's a load of rubbish 
However, it's also a very good example of switching out your linear thinking for exponential thinking because we're jumping from a $13 billion traditional aircraft carrier, which increasingly even the US military basically is saying is obsolete, particularly as we see the rise of hypersonic weapons and everything else, just for another episode. Increasingly, these things will fly. Then if you've got flying aircraft carriers, then submarines, apart from nuclear deterrence and things, almost become obsolete, don't they? Because what, what are they hunting? What are they, what are they looking for? Yeah, so, so so I think submarines basically will always have a, a place in warfare. But the thing is, when we talk about submarines, we talk about things that are under the water. Mm. But one of the biggest problems that a lot of the world's militaries actually have at the minute, particularly when we think when we start talking about, you know, military submarines like the boomers and some of the attack class subs, is trying to identify them and figure out where they are. Uh, when I was at university, one of my professors ended up with a research grant from the US military to study algae. And, uh, you know, you sort of think, well, hang on, why the heck would the US military be interested in algae? And what they sort of found basically was that as submarines moved through water columns, some algae would actually glow. And you could pick up that glow basically from a satellite. So you could track them that way. But when we actually have a look at submarines today, you know, we've got caterpillar drives like the ones that we saw in Red October. The Chinese have actually managed to, to develop caterpillar drives. They're like electromagnetic caterpillar drives. And they, they've been shown off a couple of times now. But we've got the development of what we call quantum sensors. So quantum sensors are sensors that are millions of times more sensitive than any other kind of sensor that we have today. Now, when we get into the wonderful, weird world of quantum technologies and quantum stuff, we've got quantum radar, for example, the, the Chinese, as well as the British and the Austrians, of all people, have managed to demonstrate working quantum radar systems that make US stealth obsolete, which is a fairly scary one. But then someone said to me the other day, being able to see an F-35 and actually being able to target it are two different things particularly when you look at cross set radar cross sections and all that kind of stuff and you know hypersonic anything so, you know the chinese are developing swarms of hypersonic ucabs at the moment but back to the submarine story these quantum sensors are so sensitive that they can pick up spaces in the ocean so when we have a look at the inside of a submarine it's air it's not water unless the submariners mm. are really unlucky and hopefully they've got out in time so Quantum sensing technologies, and the Chinese are increasingly putting quantum sensing technologies into satellites. They call them ghost satellites, kind of because quantum phenomena is a little bit like, you know, Einstein described it as, you know, the ghost particle or the ghost system. Right. Um, these Chinese ghost satellites are increasingly leveraging quantum physics and quantum mechanics to try to find things under the water. You know, the Americans are doing it as well and everything else, but, you know, there's quite a lot of interesting developments basically when you actually have a look at China. A lot of people try to look at China, but then can't really figure out where in China you look for particular things. And actually, because I work around the world, basically I kind of know where to actually hunt some of these things out. So that's always a weird one. So submarines are going to evolve. We've seen British aerospace, and we've seen the Royal Navy in the UK putting out concepts competitions so you've got kids that are designing submarines that look a little bit like manta rays that morph that have got different types of skins and all these sorts of bits and bobs you know that self-heal that are fully autonomous etc and even when we actually have a look at the the u.s military 
the US military have been building what we call undersea drone highways. And these drone highways are literally like service stations for drones. So underwater drones never have to surface. They just move around these underwater highways, plug themselves in, they charge and then off they go wherever they're off again. Yeah, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to do a future of military soon, I think. But judging by that, there's a, there's, a, there's a bit to chat about. Yeah, that'd be a freaky one. That's a whole conversation in itself. There it is. It's a whole podcast in itself. Matt Griffin, thanks very much for your time once again. And for more information on these topics that we've discussed on this podcast, make sure you check out 311institute.com.